0: invite you to open your Bible this morning to Job chapter 16. You'll notice on the screen we're going to be putting up uh, the text. Uh, That's because this morning I'm going to be reading from the NIV. So you're free to follow along in your uh, Bible at home or if you would like to just to read uh, the text as it's provided on the screen. If you would put that up um, on the screen. Uh, there we are, and so uh, the reason I'm reading the NIV, I think the NIV just reads a little more clearly here, a little easier to follow, and, uh, and so we will be, um, we'll be reading from the New International Version this morning. Let's give our attention to God's Word as He replies uh, once again to one of the speeches of His friends uh, as His friend tries to convince Job that he's a wicked man, and the evidence is that he's a suffering man. Let's, let's hear Job in chapter 16. Then Job replied, I have heard many things like these. Miserable comforters are you all. Will your long-winded speeches never end? What ails you that you keep on arguing? I also could speak like you if you were in my place. I could make fine speeches against you and shake my head at you. But my mouth would encourage you. Comfort from my lips would bring you relief. Yet if I speak, my pain is not relieved, and if I refrain, it does not go away. Surely, O God, you have worn me out, you have devastated my entire household. You have bound me and it has become a witness. My gauntness rises up and testifies against me. God assails me and tears me in his anger and gnashes his teeth at me. My opponent, in other words God, fastens on me his piercing eyes. Men open their mouths to jeer at me. They strike my cheek in scorn and unite together against me. God has turned me over to evil men. And has thrown me into the clutches of the wicked. All was well with me, but he shattered me. He seized me by the neck and crushed me. He has made me his target. His archers surround me. Without pity, he pierces my kidneys and spills my gall on the ground. Again and again, he bursts upon me. He rushes at me like a warrior. I have sewed sackcloth over my skin and buried my brow in the dust. My face is red with weeping, deep shadows wring my eyes, yet my hands have been free of violence, and my prayer is pure. O earth, do not cover my blood. May my cry never be laid to rest. Even now my witness is in heaven, my advocate is on high. My intercessor is my friend, as my eyes pour out tears to God. On behalf of a man, he pleads with God, as a man pleads for his friend. Let's ask the Lord to bless his word this morning. Father, this is your word, inspired by the Holy Spirit and meant for our instruction to teach and train us in righteousness it's meant to encourage us, to strengthen us. It's meant to save us. And so, Lord, do that today. And we'll give you the thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. In 1901, a long time ago, uh, but a man named Frank Grafe, a pastor, was um, experiencing a time of deep sadness i believe he had lost some loved ones to death he was experiencing deep depression he was going through his own uh, physical pain and the question that kept coming back to him was does god care does god care and so he wrote a song a song that i'm uh, sure most of you have heard and it asked that question does jesus care when my heart is pained Too deeply for mirth or song. And as the burdens press and the cares distress and the way grows weary and long, does Jesus care when my way is dark with a nameless dread and fear as the daylight fades into deep night shades? Does he care enough to be near? Does Jesus care when I've tried and failed to resist some temptation strong? When for my deep grief there is no relief, though my tears flow all the night long, does Jesus care when I've said goodbye to the dearest on earth to me? And my sad heart aches till it nearly breaks. Is it ought to him? Does he see? One of the most crucial things for a Christian to know particularly in times of trial is that God cares the God that is in heaven the God who knows our name the God who has brought us to this place we need to know that that he truly cares and is intervening and interceding for us well that is the stunning discovery that Job makes in chapter 16. He comes in the middle of his crisis to this incredible discovery that he has at the right hand of God an intercessor, a witness, an advocate, a friend, someone who cares for him and uh, will advocate for him, someone who is able to take up his cause and restore him into a reconciled relationship with God. And so we're going to follow along this morning as Job comes to this tremendous a conviction and discovery uh, the text in chapter sixteen begins with a rebuke I won't take a long time here because we've seen job do this before but he's he's rebuking his friends you are miserable comforters all of you he's very clear uh, in what he thinks about them uh, they had absolutely and unequivocally failed at their mission. They had come, remember, to comfort him, to speak words that would help him see things in a more accurate way so that he could be comforted in uh, his pain. But they've they've failed in that not only have they not brought words of comfort, they've brought words of accusation. Uh, These three friends have launched into these angry charges against Job. Job, you must have sinned. Their simplistic and legalistic understanding of God and His ways um, makes them actually become Job's adversaries. Their understanding becomes a weapon in their hand that they're going to use and bludgeon Job, their devastated and dying friend. And and Job, notice what he says in verse 4, I also could speak like you. I could make... Find speeches against you and and shake my head at you, wag my head at you in in, uh, anger and disbelief. You see, Job knows why they're saying what they're saying. He understands the whole framework that's driving them. He used to believe in that framework. Remember, we're calling that the system. He used to counsel according to that framework. He knows their speeches because he once gave them. But this idea that God in heaven robotically blesses and punishes people on earth in direct response to their moral behavior, Job is done with the whole view. it's, It's just not true. Job looks and sees wicked people thriving. And who makes them thrive? It's God who makes them thrive. And yet he, Job, a righteous man, a blameless man, is suffering the judgment of God. And so he's done with the system. He's done with his friends. But he turns now to God. And he we have here in verses 6 and following this incredible, poignant lament. is just incredibly painful words you can you can you can just sense the anguish as Job speaks and notice verse six if I speak so he says I could talk but talk does no good talk doesn't help if I speak my pain is not relieved and not talking doesn't help if I refrain the pain doesn't go away it's relentless. It won't leave him alone. There's nowhere he can turn to escape this excruciating agony of body and soul. And and God, you see, God's the one behind it and God doesn't let up. Verse 7, Surely, God, you have worn me out. You have devastated my entire household. I just want you to, to picture this man sitting on the ash heap and he's done he's completely exhausted God has worn him out there's nothing left his entire household has been devastated by God I have children and sons and daughters in law son in law I have 12 grandchildren I can't fathom God taking them all away in a single stroke. Never to see any of them again, to have my entire household devastated in a moment by God. How do you live with that? How do you, how do you possibly endure this excruciating torment? And yet, that's exactly what Job is experiencing. But the deepest agony is. is is not what, what's happened to his family and to his possessions and to his health. The deepest agony is that God has done this to him. And that's what you see in verses 9 and following. Notice how he over and over refers to God. God assails me. And tears me in his anger and gnashes his teeth at me. Verse 10: People open their mouths and they jeer at me, they strike my teeth that my cheek in scorn and unite together against me. Why? Because God has turned me over to the ungodly and thrown me into the clutches of the wicked. All was well with me, but he, God, shattered me. He seized me by the neck and he crushed me. He, God, has made me his target. His archers surround me. Without pity, he pierces my kidneys and spills my gall upon the ground. You see, the pain of losing his family was excruciating, but but the spiritual anguish of losing his God is even worse. He's being assaulted by the God he once worshipped, the God he adored, the God he trusted in and did everything in his power to, to obey and, 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 and honor. God had been his life. And now God is his seemingly his death. Now this is where I find just far too often commentators and, pre- and, and, and preachers uh, making a tragic mistake and people making a mistake by, by saying that Job is blaming the wrong person here. Um, that he, he's, he's ascribing all these things to God, but but it's not, it's not God's fault. I, I just heard a sermon again this week by a very well-known, dearly loved, very Reformed pastor and theologian and professor at well-known seminary. And in his sermon on this text, he just said, Job, you're wrong. God didn't do these things to you. Satan did them. You just... You've got the wrong person in view. God had nothing whatsoever to do with it. Now, I don't know how you can possibly say that God had nothing whatsoever to do with it. Of course, Satan is involved, but it is God. Remember remember, God who said to Satan, uh, have you noticed my servant Job? God calls Job to Satan's attention, and it was God who gave Job into Satan's hand, and Job himself immediately recognized it. So when all these calamities happened, Job didn't say, the Lord has given, and Satan has taken away. The Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. We have to stop, if we're going to understand this book, if we're going to see the beauty of it and the profound truth of it, we have to stop trying to get God off the hook when it comes to Job's suffering. To say, you, to, to, if, you, if we say, you, you say, if we say that, um, that Satan did it, that's just as comfortless as the system. There's no comfort there. If our trials are not from God's hand but from the devil's hand, what comfort will you possibly find in that? It just means, you see, that you're, you're a helpless victim in the hand of your enemy. And it, and it raises the most basic question. Well, who actually is running the universe? If, if God is just standing by watching the devil destroy you, how could we say that he actually does care at all? Or if he does care, how could we say that he is sovereignly ordaining whatsoever comes to pass? Is he or isn't he? Does he he ordain all things? And does he do it out of love for his people or, or, or not? You see, to deny that God has done these things to Job is to It's it's just to refute Job's own believing testimony and rob him of the only ultimate comfort he's going to find and empty this book of its deepest truth. God did this to Job. That is precisely the tension of the book. That's the traumatic truth that's meant to grab your attention. And the trauma is compounded. Not only did God do this to Job, He did this to Job his most beloved servant and not only did he do it to his most beloved servant he did it though Job was innocent Job was innocent that's the incomprehensible mystery of this story How can it be possible that the infinitely righteous God who only does what is just and right. How can it be possible that God does these awful things to his most obedient servant. Which God testifies to. He's the one who says there's no one like Job who is blameless and upright. Fearing God and shunning evil. And yet God does these things to to that man. God crushed him, though Job was blameless. That's the tension. That's that's the mystery. How do you make sense of that? So when Job speaks in verses 16 and 17, he's telling the truth. My My face is red with weeping. Dark shadows ring my eyes, though my hands have been free of violence and my prayer is pure. You don't want to say to Job, oh, come on, Job. You're not perfect. He's not saying he's perfect. He's saying he's innocent in this matter, before God, under the law of God. He's innocent. He's free of violence. He hasn't done things with his hands that would that would that that have been uh, contrary to the will of God. His prayer is pure. His worship is pure. He's not a hypocrite. There's nothing that you could point to in Job's life as the reason, the just cause for his disasters. He's deeply convinced of his innocence, and he's not wrong. Christopher Ash says this conscious awareness of his innocence is of enormous importance for the book. Exactly right. Job has not sinned. Job seems to be suffering the judicial wrath of God, a holy, just God. How are you going to put those things together? How is it not unjust? To every external appearance, it seems that God is treating Job unjustly, unfairly. Now God will reprimand Job for this when he speaks to him. But before we charge Job, before we blame Job for charging God with wrong, let's just pause and acknowledge that to all appearances, God is wrong. God is free Being God to do all that he pleases. But being a God of infinite justice, God is not free to condemn the innocent. And Job is innocent. And so the facts of the case seem to show demonstrably that this is wrong. And Job, sensing that he is about to die an unjust death at the hand of God, then cries out to the the ground to bear witness. Verse 18, earth, do not cover my blood. May my cry never be laid to rest. Boys and girls, you remember the story of Cain and Abel when Cain, out of a fit of jealousy, murdered his brother. It's the first murder in the history of the world. And then God showed up, right? And and the Lord, in Genesis chapter 4, verse 10, the Lord said to Cain, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. I want you to think of that. God is saying that shed blood has a voice, shed blood talks, it speaks, it cries out. And it cries out for justice to God. And God will hear. Think of all the the murders and all the shed blood in the history of this world. And and, and God is saying that that shed blood speaks. Injustice needs to be answered. and, And God will hear and God will answer. And Job, you see, is saying to the earth, don't cover it up. Let the blood talk. Let my, let, the, the blood, let my blood, unjustly spilled, cry out. To whom? To God. Job wants his case to go forward even when he's in the grave. And to go forward, you see, is to bring this before God. It's amazing how in this, in this book you just see that Job, in the worst moments... In the deepest depth of his suffering, in his conviction that God is doing wrong to him, Job can't help but turn to God. His laments are born of faith. Where else is he going to go? You see, and he's convinced, he's convinced that God is actually just that whatever is the cause of the occasion, whatever, whatever happened in the heavenlies that brought this about, it will be resolved because God is just. And, and, and as he's wrestling here he, and turns to God, he comes to this new conviction. Verse 19. Even now, my witness is in heaven. My advocate is on high. This is something that that Job discovers. Have you ever just had a discovery of faith where there was things that you've been taught maybe since you were a child? Things that you have even would have said you believed. But in a particular moment, often a moment of suffering, maybe a moment of conviction, where the the thing that you always believed Suddenly breaks upon you in in its depth, in its truth. And you see it truly, maybe for the very first time, that God is good, that God is forgiving, that God is holy. Well, Job has this truth just explode in his mind. Things that may, he would have said that God is, is all those things. But what what occurs to him by the the ministry of the Holy Spirit is a believing conviction that in heaven, in the very presence of God, there is a someone who will intercede for him, an advocate who will argue his case, who will see that justice is performed. And, And this advocate belongs to him. He uses the possessive Personal pronoun. It's not an advocate or a witness. It's my advocate. My witness. He belongs to me. He has bound himself to me. Did you see how in the darkness of Job's experience, when everything around him is gloom and death and despair, when he looks up, suddenly the light breaks through. And he realizes that his life is not defined or determined simply by the things that are happening to him and and the words his friends are speaking to him, but his life in some mysterious way, it will be defined and determined by what his advocate is doing at the right hand of God. And Job's grieving soul then embraces two precious truths concerning this one this heavenly intercessor. Notice first that his intercessor cares for him in his grief. See what he says in verse 20? My intercessor is my friend. As my eyes pour out tears to God. We have a fairly shallow understanding of the word friend. A friend could be anyone. A friend could be the person that you Run into, time and time again, uh, behind the gas station counter. And you know their name and we're friends. A friend could be someone online that you've never met. A friend could be, you know, someone that you maybe hang out with. A friend in biblical terms is someone who is bound to you. A friend is closer than a brother. A friend is someone who takes up your cause no matter what is utterly, completely committed to you because they care for you and they're bound to care for you. That is why Job is so disappointed with his friends. They have violated friendship. But now he says, my intercessor is my friend. That somehow on high, there is is someone who cares for me, who has bound himself to me, who loves me. As my eyes pour out tears to God, my friend sees and my friend will intercede. C.S. Lewis in his book The Problem of Pain writes, quote, when pain is to be born, a little courage helps more than much knowledge, a little human sympathy more than much courage, and the least tincture of the love of God more than all. Job believes At the, in the presence of God, his advocate loves him, cares for him. He has a friend. And his friend not only cares, his friend acts on his behalf before God. Verse 21, on behalf of a man, he pleads with God as one pleads for a friend. And the, the word plead here doesn't mean to beg. It means to testify, to argue a case. Um, his advocate, his friend, stands in the presence of God and as Job's friend argues the merits of Job's case. And Job is absolutely convinced that his friend, his advocate, will win his acquittal. Why? Because of the merit of the case. Job is convinced of two fundamental, irrefutable things. One, he's convinced that God is ultimately just. For God to be God, God is just. The the God of heaven shall do what's right. He's convinced of it. And he's convinced of another thing. He's convinced that he's innocent. That he has not done wrong. He's not sinned and that's why these things are happening to him. And so his advocate, you see, can appeal to a just God bringing the rightness of Job's cause because of Job's innocence, and as as the advocate presents the innocence of Job to a just God, the the outcome is is just certain. It can't possibly be anything other than acquittal. That's his conviction. And in that spirit-born conviction, God displays his gospel. You see, Job's confession in verse 19 is one of the most stunning gospel texts in all the Old Testament. Even now, my advocate is my friend. Remember what Jesus said to his disciples? I don't call you my servants. I call you my friends. My advocate is my friend. On behalf of a man, he pleads with God as one pleads for a friend. That's precisely the confidence and comfort of a New Testament believer, that we, we have an intercessor in heaven, a friend who loves us, and is even now at this very moment standing in heaven at the right hand of God to, to argue our case, take up our cause, and win our acquittal before the judgment throne of God. We read of that in Romans chapter 8. Who shall lay any charge to God's elect? It is Jesus who died, more than that who was raised to life, who is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. That's the gospel. Who can lay a charge against us? What does it, it matter what people say when God himself has acquitted us, has declared us to be righteous because of Christ Jesus who died and who was raised and who is interceding for us? What amazes me about this book Job is that here we have, around the time of Abraham, uh, a man whose experiences point with such perfect clarity to the suffering of Christ. There's not a, there's not a more descriptive illustration in, in all the Old Testament. Listen to Job's words again in verse 10 and following as they prophetically point with incredible clarity 2,000 years at least before Jesus comes to the experiences of Jesus. Verse 10, people open their mouths to jeer at me. They strike my cheek in scorn and unite together against me. God has turned me over to the ungodly and thrown me into the clutches of the wicked. It's exactly what happened to Jesus. As God hands Jesus over to the ungodly, to, to wicked Ananias and godless Pilate and the jeering soldiers who beat on him. We're told that in Mark 15. They put a purple robe on him, Jesus, and twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on him. And they began to call out to him, Hail, hail, king of the Jews. And you know that they just erupted in laughter, in mockery. And then they would take their fist and they would just beat him in the face. And they'd take the staff and they'd beat him over the head and they'd spit in his face. Hail, king of the Jews and then they led him out to crucify him Job's testimony verse 12 is precisely fulfilled in the experience of Christ all was well with me but he God shattered me he seized me by the neck and crushed me who crushed Jesus God did. Isaiah 53, verse 9, It was the will of the Lord to crush him. And he has put him to grief, though he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. It's almost exactly what Job said. Though I have done no violence, and my prayer is pure. God crushed Jesus, his sinless, spotless son, though he had done no sin. And without pity, God pierced his kidney and spilled his gall upon the ground as the soldiers poked the spear into his side. You see, all this that Job is talking about, probably figuratively, it all literally happened to Jesus, the very Son of God. Never in all the history of the world did it seem more apparent that God was unjust. Never did God seem more unjust that in crushing his own perfectly sinless son, it screams injustice. And yet the, the astonishing truth is it was not unjust at all because Jesus was crushed bearing our iniquity and his blood was shed for our sin. Isaiah 53, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities, upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. That's the gospel. And that's that's our hope. You see, shed blood cries out for justice. Jesus' blood was shed and spilled to the ground. And the wonder of the gospel is that, that Jesus, having nailed the, the law with all of its indictments against us, having, having satisfied the penalty and demand of the law, and nailing it to the cross for for us, Jesus, our advocate, you see, is now able to stand in heaven and plead our cause, and he is not pleading mercy, he's pleading justice. He's pleading justice, as he pleads his own righteousness and his own merit for our cause and our case. You see, we said that Job's confidence in his ultimate acquittal was rooted in his conviction that God is just and he was innocent. He's convinced that he's innocent. You see, and the wonder of the gospel is that in Jesus Christ, we can have the same conviction. What Jesus accomplished on the cross, bearing your sin, was the removal of the guilt My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin, not in part, but the whole is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. That's what he accomplished, friend. The removal of your guilt, and and then robing you with his righteousness, so that when God justifies you, when you stand, you see, before the... The heavenly throne, the judgment throne of God, and God says to you, innocent, it's not legal fiction. He's not pretending you're innocent, He is speaking the truth of you in Jesus Christ. It's not, you see, it's, it's not mercy at, at that place. The mercy is when God loved you when you were lost in sin and hating Him. And the mercy is that God saved you by giving you to Jesus. It's all mercy, nothing but mercy. But when you stand before the judgment throne, it's justice. As Jesus Christ says, Father... My blood was shed for him. My blood was shed for her. And justice demands your salvation. That's our assurance. God declares his elect children righteous in Jesus Christ because in Jesus Christ they are. Friends, Jesus did not die to get you off the hook of divine justice. Jesus died to receive the hook of divine justice in your place and dying your death and rising then for your justification because his plea simply is, Father, the blood cries for justice. And now this Jesus stands, sovereign Lord of all, to prepare you for all the glory that he has promised to you. That's where we live. Even now, this Jesus, who gave his life, who has accomplished our salvation, this Jesus, even now, Lord of lords king of king of kings all authority and power belonging to him ordaining every molecule in this universe this Jesus now is preparing you for all the glory he has promised you you see friends your life is not limited or bound up conscribed by what we see and what we experience it's not constricted to our circumstances not defined by our weaknesses or our failures or our loss our sin our life is ultimately defined and directed and destined by this one fact we have a friend in heaven who gave his life for us that's determinative I do not know or understand what God has willed, what God has planned. I only know on his right hand stands one who is my savior. And we have a friend who's bound to us with cords of everlasting love that nothing can break, and he sits right now, even now at the hand of God with all authority and power and dominion to care for you. His friendship is not just empathy but agency. So that the story of your life isn't told primarily in the events and circumstances of your life, but in the love and the grace and the power and the truth of His his accomplishment and His intercession. And God calls us to just let that truth sink in. Let that truth sink in. Frank Graves' life was filled with depression, sadness, pain, and the question does God care? And then he turned to 1 Peter chapter 5 verse 7 and read cast all your cares on him because he cares for you. And so he wrote the chorus. Oh yes, he cares. I know he cares. His heart is touched with my grief. When the days are weary and the long nights dreary, I know my savior cares. Your savior cares your Savior, the one who died for you, the one who rose for your justification, the one who has reconciled you to God, justified you by his own righteousness, is sanctifying you by his power, has adopted you in his grace and goodness, has given you the Holy Spirit to lead you safely home, that Jesus is your friend in heaven. Let's live as though it were true. Amen. God in heaven, we are stunned at your gospel. What an astonishing thing to to think that Job suffered all he suffered so that we could have a better understanding of the suffering of Jesus Christ and a better understanding of what you accomplished in him for us. Jesus, we are... We live in a world of condemnation, a world of shame, and we so easily condemn ourselves. And we live under the sentences that others pronounce or that we pronounce upon ourselves. And Jesus, I just pray that you give us the freedom in faith to live under the sentence pronounced by God himself that we have been justified that we are innocent, that we are beloved, that we, are call, we have been called to be saints by God himself. And saints we are, and saints we shall be forever. Oh God, thank you for your salvation. Please give us the faith to lay hold of it, to have an unshaken conviction that because you are just and because Jesus Christ died and rose again on our behalf, we are justified. We are reconciled. We belong to you, and you care for us. And may that change all the days, all the ways that we experience our days until we see that Jesus face to face. We pray in his name. Amen.